Back in the uh, early 80s, when I was in seminary, and for a number of years after seminary, I worked at a little pool service and repair company called Aquacare. During my time with that company, I trained and managed dozens of young men, mostly seminary students, and most of them were, were quality guys. They were great workers. At one point, a middle-aged man came to work for us. He was a close friend of the owner of the company, and during the year or so that he worked for us, I came to very deeply respect him, and I learned a whole lot from him. I'll call him Joseph because of certain similarities with uh, Joseph in in Genesis in the Old Testament. This modern-day Joseph quickly proved himself to be both wise and humble. And by the way, those two things always come together in one package. You never have one without the other. Joseph was a veteran fighter-bomber pilot who had flown hundreds of very dangerous missions in the Vietnam War. By the time I got to know him, he had for years been a highly experienced commercial airline pilot who was uh, distinguished in that rather elite line of work. But he had recently been grounded for an illness over which he had no control. When he came to work at Aquacare, there were things about him that just amazed me once I got to know his whole situation and his past. Because there was never one single time that he ever complained that the, that the work of cleaning pools was beneath him. There was never one single time that he complained about the dramatic reduction to his income compared with what he had become accustomed to as a pilot. He never once complained about not being able to do the job that he most loved to do. He just worked. He worked his tail off. He started every day and was the first one out of the gate, and he worked very, very hard, and he accomplished a great deal. He was a very quick study. And he quickly became a great asset to our company. When he finally got his wings back, we were delighted for him and we were very sad for us. Because it was, it was really hard to lose his contribution to the business and even more for me personally, to lose daily access to his wise and godly companionship. Men like that are becoming more and more rare in today's culture but I know a bunch of them in this room. And there's a reason for that that we'll talk about when we get to God's cure for laziness toward the end of this this message. Most of what Proverbs has to say about God's perspective on work comes in the form of contrast between two kinds of people. One of those kinds of people is called the sluggard, which refers to to a person who is slothful, who is lazy. The other kind is referred to by several different labels. In some passages, he's called the diligent man. In other passages, the righteous man. In others, he's called simply the worker. For the purposes of this message, we're going to keep it simple. We're going to call these two categories of people sluggards and workers. 
There are many verses and many passages in Proverbs that very directly contrast those two categories of people head to head with the goal of instructing us to be like one of them and to studiously avoid being like the other one. In order to understand this very important aspect of wisdom as well as possible, we're going to look at some of those specific points of contrast between these two kinds of people. To begin with, Proverbs says that sluggards are deceived and workers are discerning. We've encountered many forms of foolishness in the book of Proverbs, including sexual immorality, anger, untamed speech, pride, materialism, and others. And one of the consistent patterns that we've seen is that sin always looks harmless to the foolish man. And yet it always turns out to be devastating. The sin of laziness is no exception. The deceptiveness of laziness to a lazy man is as predictable as the sunset. Proverbs 6, verses 9 through 11, and 24, verses 33 and 34, which are excerpts from those two passages we read, each contain what I'll call the sluggard's mantra. The sluggard's mantra. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The threefold repetition of the, of the words a little, along with the transition from sleep to just rest, makes the point pretty vividly. The sluggard sees no threat to his idleness. He has complete confidence that he'll be able to <laughs> control it and to bypass any harm that it might cause. He says, in effect, oh, I'm not going to sleep very long. In fact, I might not even sleep at all. I'm just going to lay down here and fold my hands and rest for a little bit. Everything will be fine. And then I'll get productive. A few moments of rest turns into a catatonic snooze fest. And the sluggard is out cold, not just for a little while. He badly underestimates the enslaving power of a little idleness for a person who hates work. The problem here is not that taking a nap is a foolish or sinful thing to do. The problem is that the person taking the nap is lazy. He majors in naps. He loves idleness and he hates work. So when he says he's going to take a 15-minute nap, it turns into several hours. <laughs> when he says he's going to sleep in a bit in the morning, he misses the morning, he misses half of the afternoon, and then when he finally wakes up, he says, huh, there's not enough of the day left to do anything productive. So he fills his waking hours with something amusing and unproductive. This is very predictable. And then when that cycle gets repeated over and over, it turns into day after utterly wasted day, and eventually into years of self-indulgence and uselessness. I think most of us know people like that. The sluggard is deceived about two things, and they're kind of brought into focus in this one verse, Proverbs 19.15. First, he's Deceived about the power of idleness to ensnare a lazy man. The first half of the verse says laziness casts into a deep sleep. You can count on it. 
The second point of deception has to do with the outcome of laziness once it has ensnared. The second half of the verse says an idle man will suffer hunger. You can count on it. As with every form of foolishness, the consequences are far different and far more destructive than the foolish man anticipates. I've shared this little adage with you before. It's very reliable and it bears repeating. Sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you there longer than you want to stay, and makes you, and costs you more, costs you more than you want to pay. And no, that is not original with me. I learned it from my friend Brad Burton. I looked it up on the internet and the writer's name is Anonymous. As the writer of Proverbs puts it, when harvest time comes, the sluggard has nothing to harvest because he goofed off during the plowing and the planting and the watering. The outcome should have been obvious, right? But he never expected to skip out on all that critical work. It just sort of happened. Now not only does he have no crop to harvest, his field has become overgrown with thistles and thorns so that it will be doubly hard for him to do the planting for the next season, even if he finds the gumption to do it, which he won't. And when the time to sell his crop comes around, he has nothing to sell and he has no food to get him through to the next harvest. And so poverty comes upon him like a thief in the night and he is destitute, and he is undone by his laziness. But the lazy man isn't the only one who is harmed by his laziness. Proverbs 10.26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to, to, uh, to those who send him. If you make the mistake of hiring a lazy person to do a task, you get to suffer for it right along with him. You notice the verse doesn't say like vinegar to the tongue. It's not talking about how it tastes. It says like vinegar to the teeth. You know what vinegar does to teeth? Well, I use white vinegar all the time to remove the calcium buildup on small plumbing parts like faucet aerators and shower heads. It does the same thing to the enamel, to the calcium in the enamel of your teeth. In other words, it does harm. The other analogy in the verse is like smoke to the eyes. <laughs> I always get a kick out of it when at the youth group campouts, watching the lawn chairs around the campfire get shuffled around when the fire's in full blaze in morning and evening. You cannot sit on the downwind side of that intense smoke for any length of time without moving. And it's not the smell of the smoke, it's the sting to the eyes that gets you. The writer here is providing two very vivid images of the effect that a lazy man has on the one who entrusts an important task to him. That employer will find himself not just frustrated and irritated. Over time, he will suffer harm. And that harm isn't benign. It isn't easily put right. It's destructive. Proverbs 18.9 says he... Also, who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. That means he does the same thing as the guy who destroys. A long time ago, my brother Jack 
who was an electrician, got a job in a union shop in Houston, an electrical shop. And I'm, I'm not dissing unions here. But my brother got his work ethic from our mother, <laughs> and that means it was unconscionable to him to waste time or to goof off when he was on the clock. And it wasn't long before some of his co-workers at that company started making not-so-subtle threats against him because he was working so hard that he was making them look bad. See, their agenda was to get maximum pay for minimum work. And that paradigm didn't even register with my brother. The threats kept escalating, so Jack simply went and found another job, which was easy for him to do. And he went to work for a hospital in San Antonio where he could work the way he was wired to work. That's, that's an electrical pun, by the way. And he's been there for 30-plus years since, and he's one of their most prized employees. I'm sure that that shop in Houston never realized what they had lost, but the management of that company might as well have been using vinegar for mouthwash for the last 30 years, in which case they all have a nice set of dentures today. Sluggards are deceived about the destructive power of their own laziness, but their self-imposed blindness to the realities of life doesn't change the outcome. The outcome in Proverbs 28:19 is summarized as poverty in plenty. Whoa. An abundance of poverty. The pattern of foolishness that characterized the sluggard is very predictable, as is the outcome of that pattern. But on the other side of this powerful contrast that we find in Proverbs, the pattern of wise behavior that characterizes the hard worker is also predictable as is the outcome of that wise and diligent way of doing things. The worker sees things as they actually are, and he knows what to expect because God has told him what to expect, and he's paying attention. (laughs) The sluggard ignores what God says about the inevitable outcome of his action, or rather his inaction, And he deceives himself into believing that he'll come out of his laziness unscathed. But the worker knows and counts on what God says about the inevitable outcome of hard work. Proverbs 12.14 says, A man will be satisfied by the good fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. You can count on it. The man who possesses the wisdom that comes from God readily sees through the same deception that ensnares the lazy man. And he steers clear of the temptation to idleness because he respects it. He knows where it leads. In fact, to the one who's familiar with God's word and with God's way of doing things, this is a no-brainer. The hard worker knows that the overwhelming majority of the time his hard work will produce good fruit on a timely basis. And even in those times when getting to the fruit is exceedingly hard, like times of drought over which he has no say, it doesn't diminish his diligence at all. He treats adversity as a challenge to be more creative in his diligence. That's exactly how my friend Joseph handled his time of drought. 
Not only does the worker know on the authority of God's word that his hard work is God's mechanism to provide for himself and for his own family, he knows on that same authority that his hard work is God's mechanism to provide for others who are less able to do the work that he can do. Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26 says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving. And then look at the the great contrast here. While the righteous gives and does not hold back. He doesn't just provide for his own needs. He is an instrument of provision for the needs of others. Ephesians 4.28 says, He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. For what? So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. That's one of God's core purposes for our work. We are God's agents of provision, not just for ourselves, but for others. All right, so sluggards, sluggards are deceived. They're oblivious to the power of idleness to ensnare them, and they're equally oblivious to the destructive outcome of their own laziness for themselves and for others who come into their path. Workers, on the other hand, see things as they really are. They know that their hard work will be used by God to bless both themselves and others, and they act according to that clear knowledge. That's the first point of contrast. The second point of contrast is that the worker's hunger motivates and the sluggard's hunger exasperates. Proverbs 16.26 says, A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. And Proverbs 21, verses 25 to 26 that we just saw says, The desire of the sluggard... The appetite of the sluggard puts him to death. His hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving. While the righteous gives and does not hold back. The comparison of these two pictures of what happens when someone's hungry is compelling. It tells us that the sluggard has to work at not working. It says all day long he is craving. Yet his hands refuse to work. See, he wants the fruit that hard work would bring to him. In fact, he wants it to the point of craving it all day long. Yet he has such an aversion to hard work that he won't lift a finger to do the work that will get him what he craves. It's uh, very much akin to insanity as far as I can tell, (laughs) as is all sin. On the other hand, according to Proverbs 16.26, the hunger of the one who's willing to do hard work works for him. It drives him to work harder. Both men hunger for good provision. One deals with that hunger in a reasonable and righteous manner, and the other deals with that hunger in an altogether senseless and unrighteous manner. What accounts for the difference between those two Approaches to the same stimulus, foolishness versus wisdom. One man lacks sense and the other one has sense. The contrast here is like the difference between night and day. Again, my friend Joseph is to me a a very real life example of 
all of this an example that, that will always stick with me. See, when a wise and godly man experiences the God-given stimulus known as hunger, it drives him to act faithfully and diligently as God's agent for his own provision and for the provision of others instead of sitting idly and waiting for someone to drop that provision in his lap. Workers are self-starters. Sluggards are non-starters. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8 that we've already seen There are a few key things, a couple of key things that Solomon instructs his son to observe about the ant in this passage. And one of them is that even though she has no one looking over her shoulder to tell her what to do or to nudge her on, she works diligently. If you've ever had a co-worker who can't get rolling with the task unless someone's either coaching him constantly or watching him constantly, you know what a terrible encumbrance that kind of a person is to everybody on the team. On the other hand, the worker who puts both feet into a task the minute he clocks in every day and who commits himself to figuring out what he needs to know to do the job well and who keeps working until it's time to go home, that guy is a delight to his supervisors and he is very respected by everyone else that works with them. Workers are self-starters. Sluggards are non-starters. Workers prepare for the future. Sluggards live for the moment. The same passage in verse 8. The ant, having no chief or officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. She's working ahead. She's diligently storing provision to get the ants in her mound through the winter when there will be very little to gather. So they'll be in good shape until the next spring and summer come around. The sluggard, on the other hand, thinks only of the self-gratification of the moment. He's oblivious to the long-term ramifications of his actions. It's as if he is blind to anything beyond today or maybe tomorrow. And here's a really big one, very, very important. Workers expect work to be hard, while sluggards expect work to be easy. We're going to spend a little time on this one. And this, the foundation for understanding this rightly goes all the way back, of course, to the fall and to the curse of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, here's what's going to happen. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you were dust and to dust you shall return. The curse of God against the first man, Adam, with regard to work extends to every man after Adam and it includes a promise from God, a 100% guarantee that we will face constant resistance in the work that he assigns to us to do. 
Now let's be clear. Work is not part of the curse. Toil is. Work was part of the blessing that God gave to man in the garden. The blessing of acting as his agents. Of exercising dominion in his creation as those, as the only ones in his creation who are the bearers of his image and his likeness. That's a good thing. Exceedingly good. Toil, on the other hand, is bad. But God uses it too for good. Toil refers to the hardship, pain, and distress, and opposition that we inevitably and constantly face in the process of doing work. As part of the curse, God engineered opposition into the mix. It comes from Him. The curse didn't only affect us and our relationship with God. The curse extended to everything that we see around us, everything in God's creation. All of it was subjected to death, decay, corruption, futility, insects, fungi, mold, mildew, bacteria, predatory animals, and yes, sinful men who make all those other destructive forces look like child's play sometimes. All of these effects of the curse of sin conspire to oppose our work. Mankind has expended trillions of dollars and trillions of man-hours in the dizzying pursuit to reduce the effects of the curse. Yet the opposition we face from every created thing persists. We can air condition it. We can spray it with pesticides. We can smooth it out with Botox. And in the final analysis, we haven't changed anything about the curse. Everything around us is still dying, still decaying, still corrupt, still cursed. You see, there actually is a lion in the road. In Proverbs 22:13, the sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. <laughs> he says again in 26.13, There's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square, guys. And then I love the next verse. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. He's so agitated about the lion that he has to change positions in his bed. This is what the sluggard looks like. You can thank Jeff Hayden for that. I gave him a description of what I wanted and he produced it. <coughs> He's a genius. There is actually a real-life account in the Bible of a man, a shepherd, whose job description didn't give him a day off when there were very real lions outside. Not just lions, but bears. No tigers, just lions and bears. That had great interest in the sheep that were under his care. That man's name was David. And actually, at the time... The events happened that David describes in the passage we're about to look at. He was a teenage boy tending his father's flocks. He relates this story to King Saul just before he, David, single-handedly went up against a giant named Goliath who had the whole Philistine army standing behind him. But of course, David was never single-handed in any battle. And he fought many of them. In 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of that giant. Your servant, David, will go and fight with this Philistine, and 
Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. How'd you like to have a king like that? For you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. And he was. The man who embraces God's assignment not only doesn't look for excuses, he overcomes excuses. This is what it looks like when that kind of worker comes across a lion in the road. Some of the men and women I've been blessed to know who have exemplified this kind of approach to the work that God has entrusted to them happen to be missionaries. Many of us here know missionaries who have served the Lord in places where their lives are in very real peril day in and day out. For those dear brothers and sisters, a lion in the road would be a far lesser threat than some of the people with whom they're sharing the message of truth. And yet they diligently do the work that God has filled their hands to do day after day, year after year. Most of us here are not missionaries, but we all have work to do that God has given to us. And he intends for us to be joyfully occupied with doing that work while we fully trust in him. He intends for us not to look for excuses, even if they look like compelling ones. But to do our work diligently, trusting him to be greater than whatever opposition we face. The last contrast I want to point out is that workers are humble and sluggards are proud. Proverbs 26.16 says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Sluggards are absolutely certain that they have a smarter strategy for life than the people who work hard. To the sluggard, all that effort people are expending is foolish. They're convinced that somehow they're going to manage to bypass all that unpleasant stuff that God says about the nature of work in a cursed creation. And that brings us to a few popular myths about work that warm the hearts of sluggards everywhere. The first is that if you work smart, you won't have to work hard. Now, I want to quickly point out that there's a legitimate version of this adage and an illegitimate version. Efficiency experts often say very wisely, work smarter, not harder. What they mean is that doing a task the most efficient way reduces wasted effort and wasted resources, and that is a good thing always. But the sluggard has a very different slant on this adage. 
to his way of thinking, if you're shrewd enough, hard work can be avoided altogether. To translate it in his terms, if you can just figure out how the game is played, you can work the game instead of doing the work. And to the sluggard, an easy buck beats a hard-earned buck every single time. You know what God has to say about that? He says, wealth obtained by fraud will dwindle, but whoever earns it through labor will multiply it. The Hebrew construction that's translated there by fraud uses the same word that's used over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes and is translated vanity. Its essential meaning is breath or wind. Whether by fraud or trickery or luck, wealth gained without labor, wealth gained without labor is treated in the Bible as wealth gained illegitimately. It is treated as wealth gained emptily without merit or without cause to gain. And it's guaranteed to dwindle, not to persist. You put easily obtained money in the hands of a fool and it goes up like a like flash paper. On the other hand, wealth gained by earnest labor will multiply and increase brick by brick. That's how things work in God's economy. And those who long for things to be otherwise dream in vain and waste their dreams. The second myth is the myth of the perfect job. Choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. I have said that many times. I looked it up on the, I googled it on the internet and it's attributed over and over to Confucius. But anybody know, who knows the cultural context in which Confucius wrote knows that in his day men didn't get to shop for jobs so it probably didn't come from him. Of course, as Abraham Lincoln once pointed out, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> I've heard this statement at least a hundred times in my life, mostly from Christians. Choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. It'll be like entertainment. It'll be easy. Here's the problem with that statement. What it's really saying is if I can just find a job I really love, I'll get to be exempt from the curse. And that ain't going to happen. Guys, I love the work that God has given me to do. Getting paid to study and to teach the Bible and working alongside six of the godliest men that I've ever known as under-shepherds of, of the body that I dearly love and I've been in for 29 years, I cannot conceive of a better job description than that, this side of glory. But you know what? It's hard work. And there are days when the pain and the loss and the grief of the dear saints in our body is as hard to bear as anything I've ever experienced. And that's fine. Because until the day of our glorification, that's how work is in any field of endeavor. But in God's eternal scheme of things, we know that the struggles of this life are but a momentary light affliction. And in His perfect timing, they will give way to an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison.
so it's all good. By all means, if you can find and get a job that is wonderfully in line with your interests and skills, go for it. That's a good a good thing to do. But this I can guarantee you on the authority of God's Word, there will be many days when you find even that ideal job to be frustrating, tedious, and downright painful. That's by design. God's design. See, God does not intend and will not allow His children to find blissful satisfaction in the things that we can see and hear and smell and taste and touch. He does not intend for us to find cause to hope in that which is seen because that which is seen is under the curse. So while our minds and our hands vigorously do the work that God has given us to do, we never for one moment put our hope in that which fills our hands. And we don't get bent out of shape when it's really, really hard to get to the harvest. Because of the curse that our sin brought about, hard work demands endurance, it demands perseverance, it demands patience. It demands a whole lot of deferral of gratification. When my kids were very little, used to sit at the dinner table and try to teach them how to say deferral of gratification. And it came out sounding all kinds of funny ways. Demerl of gratification, things like that. See, the real gratification isn't going to come until we, t- until we stand in the presence of the Lord because our real gratification, our inheritance, is the presence of the Lord. Another myth is the myth of the faithful workaholic. Guys, for some, the lion in the road is their work. It seems ironic, but it happens all too often. For some, their job is their obsession and it's their excuse. So they place a very low priority on any of the other very important responsibilities that they have as men and women under God. A workaholic's wife or husband is isolated and lonely. His children are afraid to ask for any of his time because of the grievous hurt and discouragement that they experience from hearing over and over that he's too busy to give them any of his time. And the workaholic predictably has no time to put his spiritual gifts to use in the body of Christ because he's too busy. His lying in the road, his excuse is his work. If there is anything in our lives that we're using as an excuse to dodge the hard work of genuine godliness, we must submit that thing to God's priorities. And that may include our job. The fourth myth is what I'll call the myth of necessary amusement. Physical and mental rest are necessary in appropriate doses. Entertainment, on the other hand, is what's called a luxury. And like all luxuries, entertainment easily lends itself to abuse. Proverbs 28:19 says, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty and plenty. Now don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't believe the Bible teaches that entertainment and leisure are inherently evil. Entertaining things don't have to be empty or vain things. On the positive side, they can be 
very, a very effective context for nurturing, cultivating relationships with other people. We've had some great game nights in our ministry group that have, without a doubt, cemented the, the friendships in that group in a fun way. But at its worst, entertainment can be, become a self-absorbed black hole of time and energy that pushes aside all manner of good things. Several years ago, I built a second computer and I started playing video games with my son so that we could share something I knew he enjoyed. And we both still have fond memories of the time that we spent doing that together. But Jeff was so much better at those games than I was that he quickly became bored and I quickly became too frustrated to keep playing with him. Unfortunately, that didn't stop me from playing. When the Holy Spirit finally got my attention a few hundred hours later, I looked back at a wasteland of lost time and energy that will never be recovered for God's eternal purposes. Time that involved no one except me. I don't share that with you to demonize video games. I share it, hopefully, to prompt you to consider if there are things you do in the name of entertainment that push interaction with real people and with God so far to the side that you make yourself useless. I always hesitate to get that specific because it's real easy for us to walk away with a list of do's and don'ts and to think that that's what godliness is all about. It's not. God's cure for laziness is the same as his cure for every other form of sin and foolishness, and that cure is all about having your eyes on him and abiding in him. I love this passage, Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. It's actually talking to the slave, but it covers a whole lot of scenarios. It says, whatever you do, do your work heartily with all your heart as unto God and not as unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What a marvelous emphasis. Three times in two verses, Paul says the boss for whom every child of God ultimately works is the Lord Jesus Christ. A right attitude about the work that proceeds, uh, that, that God gives us to do proceeds from a right relationship with Jesus Christ and from a heart that's focused like a laser beam on Him, the author and perfecter of faith. Whether we like it or not, the work that we do or don't do is treated by God as a spiritual matter, not a practical matter. It's every bit as valid a barometer of your spiritual condition as what you do in the areas of sexual purity, control of your words, control of your anger, and what you do with your money. Godly diligence in every stewardship that God has handed to you is an outworking of wisdom. And as we saw when we first started this series in Proverbs, the path to wisdom starts with realizing you don't have it and knowing who does. You step onto the path toward wisdom when you humble yourself before God and confess that it is His alone 
to give because he's the only one who possesses wisdom inherent, inherently in his character and his nature. Just like life and love and holiness and righteousness and justice and mercy and compassion and grace. We don't get those things if we don't know God. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Once you get what that verse is saying, your focus turns very decisively onto the one true God so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength so that you may trust Him without hesitation and so that you may obey Him with every fiber of your being. When you do those things, you move from foolishness to wisdom in every part of your life. Loving Father, thank You again for the directness, the power of the things that You have told us in this amazing book of Proverbs on this topic. We pray that You would uh, humble us. And in those areas where we're deceived... Father, your spirit would clear out the cobwebs and would blind us to blindness and cause us to see the truth that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.